As we come to study God's word this evening, it'll be helpful for you to have John 15 verses 7 to 17 open in front of you. We're thinking this evening about abiding in the true vine. Abiding in the true, in the true vine. Uh, most of us on a pretty regular basis have to fill out forms of one description or another. And depending on the form, uh, you often have to state your place of residence. Where do, you, where do we live? Where do we abide? And if you live somewhere for long enough, it becomes obvious that you live there. Uh, there can be telltale signs that maybe you're not even aware of yourself. Uh, maybe an old friend comes to visit you and they notice that your accent has changed a bit. Unbeknown to you, you've lost a, a ballerina twang, picked up a twang perhaps. Uh, maybe it's a, a more drastic change of accent and you weren't even aware of it, but it's because you've been abiding in one particular place for a long time. Or maybe you have friends who live abroad and uh, they come home uh, to visit and sickeningly, the color of their skin tells you that they have been abiding somewhere much warmer and sunnier than you for a very long period of time. Wherever we live, wherever we abide, it has an impact on us of one kind or another. And one of the key words that unlocks the whole of John chapter 15 is the word abide. Sometimes it can be a little bit hard in John's gospel. It's, very, it's written very differently from the other gospels. Uh, sometimes we, we struggle perhaps to string together the sentences of Jesus and, uh, and see the, the themes, but one of the ways to understand this chapter is to take note of this word abide. Look at verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Look also at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, <coughs> so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The disciples, like all of us, were, were limited human beings. They, they don't always understand everything that Jesus teaches them. They don't, they don't at this point have the the measure of the spirit that they would eventually have to help them understand what Jesus is saying. And at this point, up to this point in their walk with Christ, he has been talking a lot about going to die on the cross, something the disciples just could not believe or understand. This just didn't fit with the popular notions of the kind of Messiah the Jews would have, that he would go and die in such a shameful way. And as well as that, Jesus has said that after he dies, he's going to leave them on a well, I was going to say a permanent basis, but we know that, of course, Christ is coming again. But he was going to leave and, and not be with them anymore in the way that he had been up until now. He was going to, after his resurrection, ascend to the Father in heaven. And all of this is troubling the disciples deeply. But Jesus has been reassuring them. Part of the reason he has chosen the picture of the vine and the branches, as we saw this morning, is to emphasize the closeness between the disciples and Jesus, that they can never be truly, meaningfully separated from each other. And here Jesus describes what the evidence will be in their lives if they truly abide in him. We need to know how to abide in Christ. Even if we've been Christians for a long time, we need reminders and reassurance about what it is to stay close to Jesus, to abide in Jesus. 
And so we want to think about three aspects of that this evening. Uh, three, three pieces of evidence, if you like, that if they're present in our lives, it means that we are abiding in Christ. <coughs> and so the first mark of someone abiding in Christ is persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. I want to just emphasize as we begin here that Jesus himself, it is Jesus himself who ultimately keeps hold of us. Whenever we hear him say, abide in me, it's not that we are in any danger of losing our salvation if we truly do belong to Christ. He keeps hold of us. Uh, as, as we thought about earlier, he says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Uh, and there's a, a special sense there in which he's talking to the disciples about the task he has for them as apostles, but we can apply it also to all believers. Jesus has chosen us. He is not then going to abandon us. And that's so reassuring for us uh, as believers. We all go through periods of doubt. We, we go through periods even of backsliding sometimes, or we've been putting up with a sin, or we, we just have, we have felt a lack of assurance. But here Jesus says, I choose you. He's never going to let go of us. But nonetheless, friends, there are things that Jesus says that we are to do. There are things that we should stick at and, and, and keep up if we, if, we, if we want to have that sense of assurance strengthened, if we want to abide in Christ. And the first thing he emphasizes is prayer. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Look also at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Whatever we ask. There's no caveats. There's, there's no fine print there. Jesus says, whatever we ask, it will be done for us. So do we go home tonight and ask to become millionaires? Do we ask for our least favorite work colleague to suddenly get transferred to Alaska? No, those aren't the kinds of things Jesus expects us to ask for. Jesus here is not only reassuring his disciples, he's also preparing his disciples for the mission that he has for them when he has ascended back into heaven. How do we know that? We'll look back at the very last verse of chapter 14, John 14, verse 31. Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. Rise, let us go from here. In the original Greek, that is a military phrase. That's something a general would say to his troops right before they charge towards the enemy. Rise, let us go. It's not just a, a normal way of saying that. And, that. and that's what Jesus is about to do. He, he has his, his gaze fixed upon his mission, his Military objective, if you like, to go to the cross, to face his enemies of Satan and sin and death. And that's what he's preparing his disciples to do as well, to, to move forward on the battlefield, to advance his mission when he has ascended back into heaven. The mission to spread the gospel to the utmost parts of the earth. Let us go from here. Now, when you understand that, this whole chapter takes on new meaning, doesn't it? 
When Jesus says, abide in me and without me you can do nothing, he's talking in particular about the mission of the apostles and the mission of the church. So when he then says, whatever you ask, it will be done for you, he's talking about requests that advance the mission that God has given to his people. He's talking about requests that bring glory to God. He's talking about branches bearing fruit and living in obedience to God. Of course he's not saying that we can treat God like the genie of the lamp. And that whatever we fancy for breakfast or whenever we fancy a holiday, God will snap his fingers and give it to us. Of course not. Rather, Jesus is saying that as we abide in him, as we feast on his word, as we put our sins to death, confess those sins, and by God's grace become more like our Savior, as that happens, friends, our deepest desires, our greatest concerns and longings will increasingly line up with and match the will of our Father in heaven. As a result, our prayers will be prayers prayed more and more in accordance with his will. And so he will be glad to hear and answer our prayers. My favorite example of this that I've probably mentioned before is the example of Daniel. You read Daniel chapter 9. Daniel prays this great prayer in exile in Babylon. And he doesn't pray for a promotion. And he doesn't even pray uh, that, that some of the aggravation that he had at times from other members of the government, people essentially persecuting him and his friends for their faith. He doesn't even pray that God will remove those things. He reads the, the, the book of Jeremiah. He realizes that the 70 years of exile are almost at an end. And so he confesses the sins of his nation. And he prays for God to bring the exile to an end just as he had promised and planned. And so Daniel, as he was in God's word and as he was a man of prayer already, as we know, praying three times a day. He prayed things that were in accord with the will of God. That's the mark of someone abiding in Christ. William Hendrickson says, a person abiding completely in Christ will ask nothing that is contrary to Christ's will. Thus such a person will receive whatever he asks. What does an immature chi little child ask of his parents? Mommy, can I have ice cream for breakfast? Mommy, is it okay if I run where I'm ahead? Mommy, can we go to Disney World tomorrow morning? The requests of an immature little child. But as we grow up, hopefully, we ask things that are more in accord with our parents' will. Mom, can I help you with the dishes? Boys and girls, did you ask that question this week? Dad, do you fancy watching the match this weekend? Is there anything I can be praying for you? As we grow up, we move from a heart of selfishness to a heart of service. If what we value most is living for the glory of God and what we want most is to be able to do that, then of course God is going to gladly answer our prayers. And that challenges us to consider, well, what is it that I believe about prayer? And what is it that I tend to pray for? You might even ask this question about our daily Bible readings. What, what do you pray for when you begin to read God's word each day? Do we pray 
it'll help me somehow with, with, with getting ahead in work or, or, or with putting up with some problem or uh, that we won't have to face dealing with some person? Or are we praying, God, show me who you are as I read your word today? Show me the sins that I maybe need to confess as I read your word today. J.C. Ryle says, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of close, constant communion with him, pouring out our hearts to him. Christians of this stamp will not pray in vain. The more we meditate on Christ and his word, friends, <coughs> the more we are changed by Christ and his word, the more we will be praying for things which God is delighted to hear and delighted to give because we will be praying for what advances his gospel and advances his work, whether in our lives or in the lives of others. So abiding in Christ, it involves persistent prayer. Abiding in Christ, secondly, produces abundant fruit. It produces abundant fruit. And again, notice that as with our prayer life, our fruitfulness depends on Jesus. We keep coming back to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Uh, he says earlier in the passage that just as the branch doesn't bear fruit by itself, uh, but depends on the vine. Uh, he says that in verse 4. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So fruit should be produced. Spiritual fruit should be the result of abiding in Christ. What kind of, what is that fruit? What, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, there's at least two sides to it. I hope this is a helpful way of thinking of it. Uh, firstly, Jesus is talking about a life of general holiness and obedience. General holiness and obedience. Jesus himself is, of course, our example in this. We read in Luke chapter 2 that after Mary and Joseph have the whole incident when Jesus was 12 years old and uh, he's in the temple and they lose track of him, that he went down to Nazareth with them and essentially it's telling us he obeyed them perfectly. And he grew up in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus lived a life of holiness and obedience from his earliest days. He says here in verse 10, I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus obeyed God's law. He brought glory to his father. And there's joy in obeying the father. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's a joy to live a life of holiness and obedience to God. The great lie of our world and of our own sinful hearts is that we will somehow find joy in sin, in disobedience. And boys and girls and, and young adults, this is the temptation you will face and likely are already facing. The pressure of your peers who, who, are, who think, maybe don't think twice or give the impression that they don't think twice about doing certain things, presenting themselves in certain ways in social media, maybe going to certain places. And the pressure will be upon you to feel as though well, you're somehow missing out by not doing those things or acting in that way. That's the lie of our world. Jesus says it's a joy to live a life of holiness and obedience. Sin leads to death. Obedience leads to life. 
Jesus took joy in obeying his father. Now that did not mean, of course, that it was always easy to obey his father. And you see that as you read on in the Gospels, Jesus going into that garden of Gethsemane and the weight of what he was going to do upon his shoulders. But the book of Hebrews tells us that he got through that by looking ahead to what, to what lay beyond the cross. For the joy set before him, the writer of the Hebrews says, he endured the cross. Jesus enjoyed obeying his father. He could say with the psalmist, how I love your law. It is my study all day long. It's sweeter to my taste than honey from the honeycomb. And so if we're spending time in God's word, if we're learning from the example of Jesus, we will be more obedient and we will be more joyful. This applies in our personal lives. This applies to our work life. This applies in our parenting, in our marriages in our witness to our neighbors, in our thought life, in our temper, in our words, in our patience. We are to live a life of increasing fruitfulness, of holiness and obedience. Jesus summarized the law of God in this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The more we do that, the more joyful we will be. Paul says in Galatians 5 that joy is part of the what? The fruit of the Spirit. And so what is this fruit that Jesus is talking about? It's a life of general holiness and obedience, or to put it the way Paul does, it's a life of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what it is to abide in Christ. Those things are being cultivated, they're being produced more and more. So it's that general holiness and obedience, but there's also a specific fruit, which again, I think from the context of this chapter that Jesus has in mind, and the specific fruit that will be produced if we abide in Christ is our proclaiming of the gospel, our proclaiming of the gospel. Uh, and the way that Jesus speaks to his disciples here is choice of words it seems to show that he had something specific in mind. Again, verse 16. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. When Jesus says that he chose these men, he's not first and foremost thinking of how he chose them for salvation, although of course he did. But rather he's talking about how he chose them as apostles. And the word apostle means sent out. These men were sent out by Jesus with the specific task of preaching the gospel and of leading the early church. And as they did that, they would see the fruit of it. They would see fruit that abides. What was that fruit? It was conversions. It was men and women and boys and girls repenting of sin upon hearing of Christ, uh, being converted by the, by the work of God's Spirit within them, and then going on to abide in Christ themselves. And so, the witness of these men would produce fruit and that fruit would abide. And so it's not just conversions as we would refer to it, but it's disciples. These men were, were disciples of Jesus. They were to go out and make more disciples. Who made more disciples? Who made more disciples? That's the fruit that Jesus has in mind. The spread of the gospel, the building of the church. And of course, that's exactly what these men did see. All of these 11 men, the 
became fruitful witnesses. All of them shared the gospel, preached the gospel, planted churches. <coughs> Church history tells us that most of these men eventually were killed for their faith. But the rest of them traveled away from Jerusalem and took the gospel with them, and that gospel bore fruit. And 2,000 years later, that gospel is still bearing fruit, still going out and out around the world. Our own country may seem very hardened spiritually in these days, though there is still some fruit. But in other parts of the world, there's even more fruit as the gospel spreads. One of Richard Dawkins' favorite arguments against religion used to be, I don't know if he still would come out with it, but it used to be that you're only religious, you're only in the particular religion you're in because of where you grew up. So he would say, well, you, you folk meeting in Dremore, uh, County Down, Northern Ireland, you're only Christians because you're in a Christian part of the world where Christianity is the dominant religion. If you'd grown up somewhere else in Eastern Europe or parts of Africa or Asia, you wouldn't be Christians because you wouldn't have been born in a Christian country. Well, there's more holes in that argument than there is in Swiss cheese. That's a laughably poor argument. Christianity started in first century Rome 2,000 years ago. Completely different time, completely different place, completely different culture. And Christianity has moved through every culture and every empire and every continent ever since. It's borne fruit in thousands of countries and racial groups and cultural melting pots. Far from being an argument against Christianity, this is actually one of the strongest arguments for the, the truth of Christianity, that it's not bound to any particular culture or language or tradition. Think of one famous preacher who was told when he went to university, well, you know, you're only, he was American, you're only a Christian because you came from a part of the world that's predominantly Christian. And you probably grew up in a family where you know, your mum and dad took you to church every week and, and you were sort of a new choice. And the preacher just smiled and said, well, actually, I was brought up by a single mother who was a Buddhist in complete poverty in gangland LA. God can overrule in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And so the gospel has gone out and it has been bearing fruit no matter the culture, no matter the country, no matter the people. But here's the challenge for all of us gathered here this evening. Do we want to be part of this fruitfulness? Is it a priority for us to be seeing more gospel fruit and seeing that fruit abide? Do we want the opportunity to be used of God directly or indirectly in the harvest of the nations that is currently underway Do we see our parenting as discipleship, as cultivating fruit that will abide? Do we see those ordinary opportunities, that phrase we thought about back in the summer, Jesus arriving at the, the well and the Samaritan woman being there? Just a, an ordinary day, a, an ordinary moment, and Jesus begins to speak with this woman and proclaims to her the good news of eternal life. Do we do we have eyes to see those kinds of ordinary opportunities? If this year we shared the gospel with just one person, and they share the gospel with one person, and so on and so on, imagine the fruit there could be. 
But again, Jesus says in verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. He's the vine. We're the branch. The, the life flows to the branch from the vine. And so we're to be, again, back to what we said earlier, persistent in prayer, walking with Christ, abiding in Christ. If we abide in Christ, we will bear both that general fruit of holiness and obedience and the specific fruit of proclaiming the gospel. All we can do is proclaim it. I've said it many times, but we must proclaim it. And in God's way and in God's time, we will see abundant fruit. So abiding in Christ, it involves persistent prayer. It involves abundant fruit, producing abundant fruit. Thirdly and finally, it involves Christ-like love. Christ-like love. And touched on aspects of this already, but just to think a little bit more uh, about it. Uh, once again, this all starts with Jesus. It starts with the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who himself is love. When we say God is love, what does that mean? What are we saying when we say God is love? Well, at least part of what, what it means is that we're actually talking about the fact that God is Trinity. That God is one God in three persons. That the Father, Son, and Spirit love each other. To say God is love, it speaks to the, the communion and the fellowship within the Godhead. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father says, you are my beloved son. Here in verse 10, Jesus says, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And here Jesus speaks of God the Father and God the Son and the fact that they love each other. Friends, God did not create human beings because he was lonely. God did not create human beings because he needed someone to love or someone to love him. Father, Son, and Spirit loved each other from all eternity. They had no need of anyone else. They, they were perfectly love amongst themselves. And yet the remarkable thing is that they have chosen to share that love, to extend that love to us, image bearers of God, human beings. Jesus chose to love us. In fact, just look at what he says about his love for us in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I, just in the same way have I loved you. Can we get our heads around the immensity of that statement? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Do you know, Christian, that Jesus loves you? It's that little children's song. Well, it's not just children that need to hear that Jesus loves them. Sometimes it's saints, godly saints, faithful saints, plodding saints who have been plodding on in their faith for decades who need to hear that Jesus loves them in the same way that the Father loves the Son. Maybe that's exactly what God brought you here to hear this evening. When God the Father saw Jesus obeying him on earth, keeping his commandments perfectly, he said, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Son's obedience, if we can say it this way, it, it drew out the Father's love. 
And I don't mean by that that the father didn't love him before, because of course he did. He loved him from all eternity. But, but it drew out the father's love. It attracted the father's gaze, if we can say it that way. And equally, Jesus says in verse 9 that his love is drawn out when he sees his followers obeying him. Again, it's not that we earn the love of Jesus, but we will certainly have a greater sense of assurance. We will certainly have a greater sense of fellowship with Christ, of the love of Christ for us, of our union with Christ, when we are doing what he commands us to do, when we are living as he has commanded us to live. Just as when children obey parents, it's not that we didn't, we, it's not that we'll stop loving them either way, but it draws out our smile when they obey us. And when they obey us, knowing the joy it will bring us for them to obey us. And Jesus says here in verse 12, love one another as I have loved you. There's another way in which the assurance of the Christian will grow if we're loving one another in a Christ-like way. How is it possible for us to love one another as Christ has loved us? What does he mean by that? We can't do for one another what Christ ultimately has done for us, taking away our sin. So what does he mean there in verse 12? Love one another as I have loved you. Well, he tells us in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Sacrificial love is what Jesus is talking about. And some of those horrific shootings that sometimes hit the headlines, usually from the United States, you will hear accounts sometimes of husbands or boyfriends throwing themselves on the bodies of their wives or their children, not thinking twice about letting those bullets hit them instead. Sacrificial love. That's, that's maybe an extreme example, but it gets to the heart of what we're talking about here. That's why Jesus died on the cross, because he loved selfish, ugly, rebellious sinners. He loved us and gave himself for us. And if the perfect son of God who had experienced the perfect love of the Father from all eternity can summon that kind of love for us, we should be able to love one another. Do you love the other members of this church? Children, do you love your parents? You can show that by obeying them. Do we love our unsaved neighbors? We can show that by speaking to them. Husbands, do we love our wives? Wives, do you love your husbands? If we have a care for our spouses, we will know what it is that we can do to show our love for them, and we'll do it. To love like Jesus is to love in a self-sacrificing way. And that will cost us time, effort. It cost us time we might have preferred to spend on ourselves, money we might have preferred to spend on ourselves. But it will be proof to you and to all of us that you're someone who abides in Christ. Quite remarkably, Jesus says here that he calls us his friends. The, the difference here is that he's not calling us slaves. The slave is not privy to what the master wants. The friend is privy to your plans and to your desires. The slave is not. Jesus says, you're my friends. You know what I want from you. You know what I've done for you. You know how much I love you. 
So love one another. He says in verse 17, the end of the, the passage, these things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the conclusion to this section. And he says, this is what it's all been for. I want to see you loving one another. The world needs to look at the church. The world needs to look at you. And the world needs to see the difference it makes to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have not love, I am nothing. And it's difficult because of our sin, because of our selfishness. We sin against each other, we hurt each other, we disappoint each other. And so again, we remember the words of Jesus here, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me and I in you. And that's how we'll love one another. So this simple picture of the vine and the branches reminds us how completely dependent we are upon Christ. We need to rely upon him moment by moment, day by day. But it's a joy to do that, friends. Look at how much Jesus has done for us. Look at how much he's taught us in these simple pictures we've considered at these various communion seasons. I am the bread. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Teaching us that he is God. And yet teaching us about how personally and wonderfully and perfectly he loves us. If you aren't yet trusting in this Savior, why not? Who has shown you anything near the kind of love that he has? And if you are trusting in this Savior, his message to you tonight is this. Abide in me. Don't wander off. Don't be tempted to look elsewhere. Don't doubt. Don't try and do it on your own strength. Abide in me. And if we're doing that, we will persist in prayer. We will produce abundant fruit. And we will love one another. May it be so by God's grace. Amen.